Do you have you ever had a nickname in your life that was really good or really bad? Um, everybody calls me Daisy. Oh. Um, because when I was checked into the institution, they didn't want to use my real name. They wanted to give me an alias to keep my privacy. Yeah. And then it ended up being on the cover of the National Enquirer. Oh my God. And there was press outside, and it the whole story blew up. So. Oh my God. It didn't work. <laughs> the opposite. That's the opposite of work. But ever since I was 13 and got checked into an institution <laughs> under the name Daisy, be kidding me. it is literally my favorite name. It's oh my whole my alter gosh. ego. That is the voice of the great Drew Barrymore. Man, I have to say, I was very eager to re-air this episode that we recorded actually at her CBS studios in the spring. Uh, she is a, a legend of entertainment. She, of course, she has her talk show right now, which is fantastic. And I've been a guest on. She's a movie. She's been a movie star. She's been a television star. She's she's done everything. She's produced. She's directed. Uh, we have a great conversation today. I mean, one of my favorite things about Drew is that she's just so honest about things that she totally doesn't have to be forthright about or wildly transparent about. She could be cagey if she wanted to be, but she has chosen not to be, and I love that. I always enjoy that. Uh, thanks, everybody, for, uh, by the way, before we start, for coming to The Old Man in the Pool on Broadway. If you haven't heard, we extended through January 15th. Tickets are at burbigs.com or mikeonbroadway.com. The best deals, if you're like a Joe Burbigley and you like to get the best deal, go on Today Ticks. You get the app for Today Ticks or their website. There's tickets for in the 30s and 40s and 50s and 60s, like really good seats, amazing seats. I mean, there's no bad seats in this house. It's a thousand seat theater, the Vivian Beaumont Theater at Lincoln Center. It's gorgeous. I have a great conversation with Drew Barrymore. Uh, one of my favorite episodes we've ever done. It's very inspirational. In addition to being very funny and having great stories, very inspirational. Enjoy my conversation with the great Drew Barrymore. I feel like your pivot into like hosting a talk show is in some ways like claiming your own life narrative because you're like from a kid, you're a kid, you're a star, right? I never thought of that. That I've never thought of it that way. Yeah, I mean, as you're a you're a child star. I'm watching you in ET when I'm a kid. Yes. we were like, you know, I like I was a kid. You were a kid yes. in the movie. Like it's such a strange parallel existence from Shrewsbury, Massachusetts, and then and then you're a star. And then you're a romantic comedy star. And, you know, like, in, in you were, like, wildly covered in culture in this way where, like, when when I shot a bit part in your movie Going the Distance with Justin Long, like, you and he were dating and paparazzi were around the corner of the set just sh- shooting tons of photos. And, like, and what a strange fishbowl existence. And then by having a talk show, you're basically like, well, here's my story and here's all my stuff. Here's what I like. Here's what I don't like. Here's who I'm dating. Here's who I'm not dating. And and that and it's it's kind of got to be that's got to be empowering, right? It's so funny. I've never thought of it that way. Um, I I definitely 
And as you're saying that, I remember like that first episode when you launch a talk show, everybody puts this intense onus on who that first guest is. Um, it's a real jockeying for like, who is the biggest star you yeah, can yeah. get? Yeah, yeah. You want to come out of that gate swinging yeah. with Mr. or Mrs. A-list, which is such an industry kind of way of thinking. And I... I couldn't see who it was, not in a silhouette or in a fantasy or a projection. And one day I was sitting in the conference room next door and the launch is coming. It's around the corner. It's weeks away. And I was in the conference room and um, I started crying hysterically because all of a sudden I knew who I saw in a vision, and it was Cameron and Lucy. Oh. And I. Charlie's Angels, and you had worked with for so many years. And we've all been such good friends. Yeah. Um, we're so close. We've become you, mothers now. Oh. We've gone through divorces, we've gone through breakups, we've traveled the world. You were parried it on SNL. You oh, parodied. I'm, Do you remember? Which one? Which time? Oh, my gosh. I don't remember. I just remember seeing, like— Like the these, three of us? Yeah, the three— on, Like, on Weekend Update, I feel like years ago, it was, like, the three of you, like, maybe making out with each other. <laughs> oh, my like, God. like, people playing you. Oh, well, because like we were so also so affectionate, too, yeah, yeah. of course. Yeah, that, that tracks. Um, <laughs> we were, like, puppies. Like, three puppies from a litter got, like, left— and we just remained like as if we didn't know any difference. Like you're just supposed to roll around together, right? <laughs> like, that's, isn't that what life is? Um, I love that. And I just thought it's a great. It, it didn't feel like a reunion because we're all still in each other's lives. But I just thought, what a great way to instead of pretending and posturing to be this talk show host with some. A-list star that I didn't know and was going to interview, um, I was like, can it be my friends who I have this rich history with and who I I think we all accomplished something together that we're really proud of and we've seen each other through every kind of experience that life has to offer. Again, that dark light, death, birth, loss, grievances, you know, promotions, job changes, everything. There's yeah. nothing we haven't, you know, we've seen the world together. We're, and so that, for me, maybe contributes to the narrative that you can see because you're more objective than I am. Um, I'm not very objective of my, about myself on with great purpose. Um, that, that felt right to me because it felt more true to myself rather than a posturing. And I felt like it was equally exciting. I was excited by it. Yeah. And when you're excited by something, that's more important than what you think you're supposed to do. Screw what you think you're supposed to do. Do what is so within you and like a fire burning you can't extinguish. Just be, don't fake shit. Yeah. Don't posture, don't pretend, don't placate to the phantom they. The phantom they doesn't exist and they can change their mind on a dime. It's so toxic. Yeah. So if you just have fucking faith in yourself, which is so hard to do, and if you're a self-flagellator like I am, I'm not only trying to believe in myself, but I'm trying to fight and thwart off dragons and demons who are telling me I'm shit all the time. Believe me, like we're all so fucking dark inside and we're trying to fight for the light 
But the one thing we have going for us is our weird, unique positioning (laughs) in ourselves. So if you are yourself, that's the best thing you've got going, even though you're probably telling yourself you're shit and you don't think you're the best thing you've got going. Yeah. But you are all you have. Your unique thing. That's it. That's all you have. Don't pretend to be what you think other people want you to be. Don't do it for other people. Do it because it it makes sense to you. And that's where individuality like kicks in. It's so funny because those those two of the things you're saying line up with a thing I wrote years ago um, for the New York Times, which is six tips to make it small in Hollywood about making indie films basically. And, and one of them actually was um, essentially like uh, give yourself to the audience because it's essentially like all you have to offer. All yes. any of us have to offer is ourselves. Yes. I did. That's so well put. I don't know how you said it in three words (laughs) um, or five words, and it took me 10 minutes to articulate that thought, but all you have to offer is yourself. But there's so so often we're witnessing people in show business trying to be someone else. It's hard to be an originator. I think a lot of us, you know, in any, like, form, you could literally say from financial, you know— world to artistic world um, to like elect, a lot of people are recycling what we know. Like it's hard to come up with something like brand new that's never been done. That those are very lightning in a bottle moments and not easy to produce from every person every day. A lot of us are recycling the things we know and we're following, uh, you know, a little bit of a Format and it, you could think of it as lemmings, or you could think of it as, you know, we're we're just trying to function. It's it is rare in any field that someone creates something brand new. Think about like if you write something, it's not the first time it's ever been written. If you per, you know, yeah, it, it's hard. It is very unique and rare to build a first or a new. In any field that we have. The the other thing that you were saying that echoes something from that six tips piece was, um, I, I always say, do what you love, not what you like. Uh, because there's so many things you like, especially if you're someone who generally sort of enjoys the wonder of it all. But there's very few things that you like love. You're like, I have to do that. Shit for bigs. That's so <laughs> freaking profound. Can I swear on this? Please. Okay, good. Oh, yeah. I can't on the show, so I, I just <laughs> need to let it rip. It's the one thing I couldn't change as a parent. I was like, I changed everything for you guys, but I'm I know, a fucking Jen swearer. I know, dance around it. Oh, I, I, I can't. I can't. And my kids are actually really healthy about it, thank God. Um, I... I love that so much. It reminds me of this story, this gentleman, his name is Raja Gosnell. He's a director now. I did never been kissed with him. But before that, he was an editor and he edited Pretty Woman. And of course, I was like, tell me everything. Because Pretty Woman had a very different uh, tone and story when it was originally made. Oh, that's Um, interesting. It was called like 3000. Wow. I think it had a, quite a different ending. Oh, that's interesting, yeah. Um, and it was a bit of a different tone, and then they kind of reimagined it in editing. Same oh with, like, gosh. Annie Hall, a lot of great movies. Oh, yeah, yeah. Both, both of my movies, Don't Think Twice and Sleepwalk With Me, were completely reconceived in the edit. A lot of people say, 
there's the writing of the movie and that's making a movie. There's the shooting of the movie and that's making another movie. And there's the editing of the movie and that's making a third movie. Exactly. And the third movie is the one people see. Yes, that's exactly <laughs> that's right. not my own wisdom, but I've heard that before. So Raja said to that point, he was like, I think of it as like a sifter. Yeah. And you put stuff on the sifter and you shake it and you see what sort of falls out. Oh, I like that. And then, you know, you keep doing that until what's like in the bowl is left and all the stuff that kind of stayed on top and didn't make it in. Yeah. Um, and if you do what you love and not just your what you like, you're putting so much on the sifter and, and keeping the important stuff and maybe you know, getting rid of some of the more superfluous, overabundant things because we can all get really overwhelmed and lose our way very easily. So if you choose your battles like that and you keep that as a cardinal rule, that's very educating. Like I'm going to be taking that wisdom with me very much to heart and constantly thinking about that statement. You gave me a little bit of an Oprah aha light bulb moment like, that is a very big takeaway for people, and it's a big takeaway for me. If you unpack you going from like ET to hosting your own talk show, along the way, there's also like steps towards that oh, where God. you become a producer and a director. Yep. And you're ultimately part of the creation team of these movies you're in. Well, Nancy Javonin, who's now Nancy Fallon, your friend as well, um, I met her when I was 19, and I, I had done E.T., I had done Firestarter and, you know, sort of all these movies, and then, like, just had too much excess and access. Um, my, you know, mom and the life just sort of created a monster in that way that I wasn't a mean, bad person, but I just got like so heavily involved in like clubbing and drugs at like this really, really abnormal age. Um, I'm sure if I was like in my early 20s, it probably wouldn't have been so shocking, but it was like, you know, I'm seven at Studio 54 and like practically like, you know, I'm and so my mom threw me in an institution and then I got blacklisted because, oh my God. and that's still a really big trigger for me because I never screwed up at work. I just screwed up in life. But, you know, I think my job was very much taken away and I wasn't sort of a trusted source. And I understood that from my own behavior, but I just felt terrible because I was like, God, I never screwed up at work. And then uh, I got out. 14, got emancipated, started working in a coffee house. And then I was like, shit, you know, my boss yelled at me because I was so bad at my job. (laughs) He hated me so much. I don't know why he even kept me around, I think, for his amusement. Um, Would people stop you and you're serving a coffee and be like, you're Drew Barrymore? Yeah, all the time. Oh, my gosh. Every day. Jesus Christ. And ironically, that's where I met Cameron. Oh was gosh. at the coffee house on La Brea in Los Angeles in West Hollywood. She was a 16, a junior model, and I was 14, 15, living on my own, emancipated. And we became good, we became friends. And she was this beautiful girl who didn't have an attitude and was a girl's girl and everything you wanted because so many girls, you know, who are that attractive, like, they're not always the warmest, but she was like so goofy and yummy. And I was just like, I feel fucking great about myself around her. I fucking <laughs> love her. We just we just 
sparked and got electrically connected right away. Um, she's funny. It's like something about Mary was a revelation for everyone because it was like, oh, yeah, like that's the girl every girl wants to be friends yeah. with and every guy wants to date. Like she's that been that since 16. Yeah, yeah. Since I've known her. Um, <laughs> and then I just, I think it was like my boss who hated me, Robert Cass, who was basically kind of indicated like I wasn't, living my dreams yeah. and I was being really complacent and stuck. And I just remember being like, I got to quit this job and I got to get back on the horse and I got to start facing people. Yeah. And I had a lot of casting directors who were not so nice, oh um, a very you're lucky to be here kind of thing. And I just thought, you know what? Fuck it. I've experienced rejection as a kid. You don't get a ton of parts that you go up for. I don't fucking care fuck this, I'm going to go in and I'm going to keep trying. And the, and this word earn became so important to me. You have to earn things. People fuck up. They lose shit. You got to go get it back. This happens to fucking everyone in life. Yeah. And so I just kept showing up and then I kept, I finally got work. And then I think there was like, oh, you're ET kid. I was like, how do I wash people's minds out of that? I need like Listerine for the brain. I know, I'll go sexy. Oh and I was like, that'll, that'll change people's I know, minds. I'll go sexy. I know, I'm gonna go sex kit. By, by, by the way, that's not an option for everybody. <laughs> I never had that, Drew. I never had that. Where's my, I know I'll go sexy, Mike Birbiglia moment in life? By the way, everybody can be sexy. Yeah, no, I agree. It's so about, like a within confidence. Yes. Um, and I, I it, it worked, luckily, and I started playing like a bunch of tart-like roles. And I listerined the brain oh of little Gertie and went into like Poison Ivy, Amy Fisher. And then I was about to do this part that was another one of those and I backed out at the last minute, and I was devastated because I knew it was going to be the most epic movie, and it was. And I, I I went and met Nan and was like, I want to make films. I I could, I, I was really a B-movie actress, like, tart. And I had put myself in that box, and I was like, okay, now I got to figure this out. And what were those movies? I'm trying to think of what those movies Poison were. Poison Ivy, Amy Fisher. Okay. Like, uh, I was kind of in that, like, okay. mode. Okay. Um, I did this Western called Bad Girls where, okay. like, former or prostitutes turn into, like, Western vigilantes, basically. Okay. But it wasn't going that way. And I thought it would be so rad to do, like, a badass chick action film and yeah. it just wasn't that movie. Yeah. And I saw this woman running around on set trying to solve all the problems. She was a producer. Oh so I was like, I want to. And that's Nancy. No, it was Linda oh. Opes, this oh, woman. Okay. I, no, and then I met Nan and I was like, dude, I dare you to start a production company with me. You're saying you were 19 when you met Nancy. I was Nancy. 19, yeah. And you sort of dared her to start a production company I dared company her. With we you. didn't know each other very well. I just crazy. had a feeling this about her. I knew her story. brother really well, Jim. <laughs> And I was convinced. And I know Jim because he he's at the Tonight Show. Yep. I think still. Yep. He's yeah, yeah. running Jimmy's shows. Yeah. Um, he's doing That's My Jam and yep. Um, yep. Lip Sync. I mean, everything. They're doing everything. Yes. Um, so, yeah, she took a risk. 
um, moved from San Francisco to L.A. And then here's how we basically started a production company at 19 called Flower Films, is we sat around and we talked about what do we like? Yeah. Who are the directors we admire? We got in with writers. Yeah. Nothing exists. It's all a pitch and nobody has a crystal ball. So we're going to sidle up with all the writers. We became friends with literary agents. We didn't party with people. We weren't out for the CNBC. Um, that is the opposite. We didn't want to be party girls. Yeah. Um, we wanted to be really creating things. We would option books. And... Um, we, I remember an embarrassing moment where we put the director, Hal Ashby, who made just the best films ever, Coming Home and Harold and Maude and all these great <laughs> films. And they were like, he's dead. And we were like, okay, somebody like him. Oh my God, that's so funny. Being there. Being there. Yeah, he, yeah. Made, he was, we loved like the Curtis Hansons and the Ang Lees oh, and these, gosh, yes. these filmmakers who like, you couldn't tell what they were going to make next. They were so full of range yeah. and everything they did was so perfectly tailor-made to that yeah. movie. They weren't cookie cutter. There was that 1990s period where there were the, those filmmakers were able to make those films essentially. Yes. I, and that's what I grew up on. Yes. And that's how I got really in love with independent film. That's it's like those directors. Those directors, those, I'm gonna make this so perfect for what it's supposed to be yeah. rather than make it my formula. Yeah. Um, and so, and I wanted to express range as an actor um, and I wanted, so we just, we just started like building kind of a little shop where we figured out what we liked and what we wanted to make and put out into the world. Um, we found the script Forever After. We found the script called Scary Movie, which turned oh into Scream. Oh, my gosh. Unbelievable. Um, we, um, In my opinion, like one of the greatest first scenes of all time. Well, I wasn't originally supposed to play that part. It was oh supposed to gosh. play the Sydney part, who is the— main character, and then I had a moment where Nan and I were living in this apartment in New York, and I had, like, a freak out, and I was like, I have to play the opening scene. The fucking <laughs> things in, in <laughs> scary movies is you always know you're going to be okay. Like, yes. Jamie Lee Curtis will always oh live. Oh, my gosh. She's still alive. And, of course, alive. Drew Barrymore is going to be okay in this movie. Exactly. Janet Guess and Psycho. What? So I convinced oh, so good. everybody to do it, and we did it. And Nan and I were together when I filmed it, and because we were sort of like unofficially n not producing it, but like helping with it and being a part of it. And I remember we drove home to her mom, Pam, in Santa Rosa, and it was all night shoots. And I was out on a pier drinking beers at like 8 a.m., just so happy that like the whole mission of like two years of trying to make this film was done. And we just liked what we did. And... And then we made Never Been Kissed was our first official wow. movie. And then she would come in and be like, dude, they're making Charlie's Angels over at Sony. And I read the script. And it's like dark. And it takes place in like Switzerland or <laughs> Germany and California. <laughs> Angels, bright, poppy, colorful. Dude, we got to do this. And I was like, oh my, oh, my God. That feels like a really big second step, Nan. Yeah. Um, but we did. And we— proved to Sony that we could make this movie and we found a writer because yeah. we had been studying writers. So we asked John August to do it. Oh my And he gosh. wrote the script and then I called Cameron and convinced her to do it. And she- This um, story is too much. She really was in a place in her life where she was being very choosy 
Um, she was doing the Being John Malkovich's. And oh, yeah. There's something about Mary's and she Vanilla was, Sky was around that time, I think. Uh, I think it was after. Okay. But she was really in a very, she could have anything she wanted and do anything. And she made choices from her heart. She was wow. not, I think all of the people I have really loved and become close to are not career-driven people. Yeah. They are like, this is what I love. Yeah. Um, this is what I need to do. I'm going to do it, and it works out for them. Those people who are, like, riddled to the gills with ambition are not my kind, are yeah. not my speed. Yeah. That, like, hungry, I want it. I can't fucking take that. I can't take yeah. that energy. That's, why I've, so never been, that's, never, that's why I've never been able to live in Los Angeles. <laughs> the whole town of Los Angeles. <laughs> no, really. I, like, I, I, I lived there for a, a sitcom pilot based on my life, like, 13 years ago that never went to air. And my experience of living in Los Angeles was um, everyone, you walk in a room and people place a value on your forehead. And it's just in your head the whole time. The the vibe of everyone's value is in every conversation. And I didn't agree with what my value was with anyone. (laughs) I was like, no, no, I'm very valuable. And they're like, no, you're not. (laughs) Well, thank God you believed in yourself. You know what I mean, though? Like, sometimes in in Los Angeles, it does feel like everything's a transaction. And the thing you're describing of, like, these people who are just, like, 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 more successful, more blah, 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 blah. And it's, and it's hard sometimes to distinguish because there's a lot of great artists in Los Angeles, so many. I, I think mean, it's intention. It's like I can feel people's intention. And so I just don't want to be around greed. Yeah. And it's there's a greediness in like just wanting more and to be more powerful and more successful and that kind of – Here's another word that really upsets me is calculated. Yeah. I just hate when people are like, well, this would be the best next move. Yeah. Fuck it. Yeah. Do what your fucking heart and your gut tells you. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I convinced Cameron, who was literally had every option open to her. And I was like, you're not going to believe this, but Charlie's Angels, there's no fucking script. And I really want to hire this first-time music video director, um, and Sony's going to take a risk on this for $100 million, but I swear to God, I promise you this, I will not let you down. Please come take the fucking leap and do this with me. And she did. And Nan was very much, when I grew up in Hollywood and in industry, um, really I only had Steven Spielberg to look to for a moral compass, Nan was a human moral compass for me. She used to say, we keep our promises. We keep our head down and we do the work. We, you know, we deliver to people who have trusted us with a budget. And she would just slow and steady wins the race. She had all these kind of isms that really spoke to me and helped teach me what kind of person I wanted to be in life. I didn't have parents and I didn't have siblings. Um, And she became like the sister I never had, but she is that older sister in the way of, she's not older than me in age. She's that wise taskmaster, really tough fucking customer who doesn't take bullshit and who tells me things really straight 
And honestly, I, I can't tell you the amount of, amount of times Nan has laid into me about shit and I fucking love her for it. It's like yeah. the people I love the most are the harshest, most honest, real. Yeah. They want the best from me. They want the best for me. Yeah. They expect the best from me. Yeah. They're not willing to be a yes man or take my shit if I am failing. Even recently, like, I don't know, in the last five years, I, I really fucking went down and was struggling in life. And where who walks in but Nan? She's like, this is enough. You're not okay. It's not okay. Pull it fucking together. I'm helping you. Wow. Like she really is that. I got really lucky. I found people in this world who would have my back and kick my ass and love me all at the same time. And I love them in ways that the only thing I can do is try to live up to the potential they see and try to make them proud because it gives me the greatest fulfillment. This is the thing we do in the show called the slow round. Um, sort of, sort of re- memories. Uh, do you have a smell you remember from your childhood? Night blooming jasmine. <laughs> that was so fast. There was a big night blooming jasmine. Fastest response to that question ever. Bush outside of our tiny little broken down duplex that I lived in when I was a kid until from zero to seven on Point City, a place in West Hollywood. Wow. Um, Los Angeles, California, and it was such a regal, royal, rich, beautiful scent. Night blooming jasmine is so elevated. Yeah. And there was really nothing elevated about like where we lived. Oh, that's or beautiful. What our life was. And I did a thing called kaleidoscope, which is where you blind scent test every accord that goes into what makes perfume at the end of the day. So it's like 250 different scents. Yeah. Um, And they say scent is the strongest memory. That's what they say. I remember smelling this one scent and I burst into tears because it was the night blooming jasmine outside of our little duplex. I just love that. Do you, have you ever had a nickname in your life that was really good or really bad? Um, Everybody calls me Daisy. Oh. Because um, when I was checked into the institution, they didn't want to use my real name. They wanted to give me an alias to keep my privacy. Yeah. And then it ended up being on the cover of the National Enquirer. Oh, my God. And there was press outside, and it the whole story blew up. So oh my God. it didn't work. <laughs> it, the op- that's the opposite of work. But. Ever since I was 13 and got checked into an institution <laughs> under the name Daisy. You gotta be kidding me. It is literally my favorite name. It's oh, my whole my alter gosh. ego. I love Daisy. It's my favorite flower. That's why they picked it for me. And to this day, um, if you're like, I'm not going to tell you the last name that they gave me because then my entire alias yeah. would be given up. But like prescriptions, hotel rooms, like everything's under Daisy blank. Oh my gosh. And I, it's like I own this name and it's, I love it so much. I'm so proud of my nickname, Daisy. I think that's the best, best answer, um, also. The institutional <laughs> origin story of my life. Um, I love when people call me Drew Bear 
It's, oh, that's sweet. That's so rare, though. That is one Drew in Bear. a billion people. Oh. I love that. Strangest neighbor you remember growing up? Well, like, ironically, the person who gave me the nickname Drew Bear was this couple, Joel and Gina, and they lived on the other side of the duplex yeah. with the night-blooming jasmine. Um, and uh, they were a very young, sexy couple, and we went to their wedding, and they had Dalmatian jo- dogs, and I, I just loved them so much. Um, and uh, I remember sometimes I would hear them like laughing on the other side of the wall or fighting. Yeah. Um, or just living their life. Yeah. And it was weird because I was convinced there was just no sound on our, our side of the wall. My mom and I lived in like a very quiet, single mother-daughter home and everything was so loud outside of that house. We were on movie sets and, you know, she worked at the comedy store and like, but for some reason our side of the duplex was like eerily silent and yeah. Joel and Gina sounded like it had life in it. Oh my God. And I would like covet it. But that's like when I hear neighbors, I think of Joel and Gina and like, why did our house sound so silent? Oh my gosh. <laughs> and our really? life outside the duplex was extremely exciting. Do you, do you remember your earliest memory? Like the first thing you remember, the youngest you remember being? It was definitely a lot around that duplex. Um, I mean, I'm thinking it must have been like two, two or th- two, I think, two years old. Um, I remember being in commercials and on films, like commercial sets. Um, and at the time, I had a neighbor named Daniel Faircloth. We used to sell apples around the neighborhood. I can't believe like our parents just let us walk around like a very- Same. Very- <laughs> So strange. Dangerous neighborhood <laughs> yes. at two and three years old. Yeah. Um, we're doing a story on the news later today about how there's this whole movement actually where people are sending three and four-year-olds on like serious errands. Yeah. And it's just crazy to people. Yes. But it's exactly the way we all grew up. No, I've seen those clips. Yeah, it's, it's in trending Japan, it's right? everywhere. Yes, yeah, it's yeah. crazy. It's a series on Netflix. Yep, they, exactly, yeah, yeah. exactly, exactly, exactly. Yeah, I was intrigued by that story. I actually am very intrigued by it because my kids are now at this like age where I'm like, I need you to go do this. And there's really good developmental um, information out there, yeah. actually, if you go to like Raising Good Humans um, and there are other outlets that kind of have really interesting, teachable ways of empowering your kids. Yeah. And we do fucking everything for them. Yeah. And so, yeah, I'm like super into this movement. That's fascinating. My kids are now eight and almost 10. And I'm like, oh, they need to just start doing a lot more things. I'm so inspired. Totally. So I, so the, the thing that I don't understand about your career that I think might be illustrative is like, for people who pursue comedy is like, how'd you learn comedy? No one taught you comedy. You never were in an improv group, you never did stand up, and then but you're so funny and you're such a funny actress, you're such a funny TV host. I can't even believe I'm hearing that from you. It like freaks me out. Thank you. I, I think it's a personality thing. Um, I'm not totally sure if it's like that whole nurture nature question, like, are you inherently funny? 
or can it be learned? Yeah. I don't know the answer. Yeah. Um, I know that because I haven't seen E.T. in many years, but yeah. I remember when we went to what was the 20th anniversary. Oh, my gosh. We just had the 40th. We're having the 40th this year. Um, I remember being shocked at how um, jokey and sarcastic my character Gertie was. Oh, yeah. Um, I did not remember it that way. Oh, interesting. And when I went back in my 20s and watched it, I was like, holy shit, this fucking character is really comedic and She's sarcastic. She's real goofball. She's real, like... She's a real but I'm ch- <laughs> you know, like everything was like, give me a break. And like, you think so? And I, I was really shocked. I did not remember it yeah. when we were making it that way. But I know for a fact that I owe it all to Steven Spielberg because he auditioned me like six times for the role. And... Um, or four times, many, many times. And he would tell me to embellish on my stories, and I was a huge liar. I oh made up stories. I made up everything. I told him I was in a band. I lied about this. I lied. But I, it wasn't like a lie to lie. It was all imagination. And most directors, when they're directing kids, nobody to this day has ever been like Steven Spielberg. He was like, no, make that joke. Make something up. Yeah. Improv. Give him a wisecrack. He'd hear something on the side and be like, put that into the scene. Yeah. So he single-handedly taught me what improv was. Yeah. Um, and then when E.T. came out, they asked me to do Saturday Night Live. And I hosted the show in 1982, and he was very involved um, because he really was, again, the only kind of father figure I've ever had. And he brought Robin Williams to the show. Oh my gosh! Which scared me so much because Mork from Orc. Where do you sign Orc up for this class? Was coming, and I was like, <laughs> "Oh shit, Mork from Orc is coming!" <laughs> and we all knew how big and talented <laughs> and exciting he was. And when I did the show, it was Eddie Murphy. Oh my god! But Eddie Murphy hadn't become this big exploding right. actor. That was like Eddie Murphy, Joe Piscopo. Yep. Uh, Julie Louise Dreyfus. Yes. Yes. And Brad Hall. Yes. Yes. Uh, Mary Gross, Tim Kazarinski. Oh my gosh! Um, and that was the cast. <laughs> That's and wild. I, that week and coming off of E.T. Um, and having people, I think, put like microphones and cameras in my face was such an invitation to me to go for it. Oh, yeah. That between the crazy press tour of E.T. and there's so many interviews I did. And that was all, Carson taking my teeth out. Like... I was only being encouraged to play. To be goofy, yeah. To be goofy. Yeah. I was, there was laughter, there was encouragement. Yeah. So at six years old and seven, when the film came out and we were doing the world tour, all the interviews, Saturday Night Live, Carson, all of those experiences within the space of a year literally told me, you go for it. Yeah. You go. And then when I started going hard into comedy, like later on in life, um, I realized that it was a, a making a weird deal, um, which was you're going to drive home. 
you're going to put it all out there. You're going to feel like shit while you're oh doing gosh. it. Because you're going to literally be doing things a lot that won't work, a lot that are going to make people uncomfortable, oh a lot that's going to fail or flop in that moment, and you're going to be left with egg all over your face. But no matter what you do, just be on that drive home knowing you really went for it. Yeah. And you left no stone unturned, and you did embarrass yourself fully. Yeah. And that was the lessons of, like— That's huge. —the 20s. That's huge. I mean, I had that when I was in Trainwreck. My character was— uh, Amy Schumer's like, like oh, brother-in-law. Right. I've seen it fifty times. I know. And, and, it's the uh, best. And, You're the best in that movie. She was. She. Amy would make fun of me, and she would improvise and improvise and improvise. And it was like, like, and it was after a while. It was just like, this does not feel like we're playing the characters. Like, <laughs> this feels real. And I would come home to Jen. <laughs> I would come home to Jen, and I would go. I think that I might be like a loser, <laughs> and I don't realize it. And uh, and and you know Jen would like reassure me, but it was it's funny how <laughs> how on the sets of those things it really blends into life. It doesn't matter where you are if you're gonna try to go for comedy, you've got to leave it all out on the field, and you will probably be guaranteed to have a really bad drive home. Oh my gosh, that's so funny! And that's the only way you know that like you maybe got something. joke a year ago about how it's so hard to be single in New York City because because so many women think they're living in, in the show Sex in the City and so many men think they're living in the show Mad Men, but we're all living in Game of Thrones. <laughs> Except for in Game of Thrones, everybody has a lot of sex. Um, and there's like a fierceness. I feel like it almost feels like... Like some weird, like '80s Billy Crystal movie. Oh my god! <laughs> and not Mr. when Sa- Harry, Mr. Saturday Night. Yeah, and not when Harry met Sally. <laughs> like it's it's like the odd couple. Well, my other my other joke about New York is that like one of the strangest things about it is that so often you see people breaking up in the street because it's too expensive to break up indoors. Like there's no there's no room. Yeah. You know, and so like one day I saw this woman on the street and. She was like crying on the phone. It was like a breakup. And I wanted to walk up to her and be like, it's going to be okay. And then I thought, what a nightmare that would be for her. It's like the man of her dreams just broke it to her that they have no future. And then this middle-aged guy, ogre, walks up to her and goes, guess what? I'm the future. <laughs> but saying it's okay is not saying you're the future. It's like, <laughs> I, I, I used to love, like, fighting on the New York City streets. Uh, I always had boyfriends. Jen and I had some bad ones on the New York streets. Oh, I love it. Fuck it. It's fair game. It's the sidewalk. (laughs) Everybody owns it. I've had so many dramatic meltdowns and What's the worst worst argument you've ever remember having on the street in New York City? All I know is that I remember, like, the guy saying, like, we're out in public. And I was like, fucking who fucking cares? Oh, my God. Um, I've, I, yeah. I have a story where, where Jen and I broke up once 
It's in the My Girlfriend's Boyfriend show, but she she literally need me in the balls. <laughs> Did you like, deserve it? Like in the street. Probably, yeah, yeah. But like, <laughs> it was horrible. That because is such a good because, story. Yeah, yeah, it's horrible because like, not only are you experiencing this pain that's like inconceivable, but like people are staring at you experiencing it. I, I never had a problem with that. <laughs> I, I guess I, you know, I don't know. I, I've been trained to be okay with people knowing. I don't know. I just, I, and I enjoy watching other people live their lives. Like, well, that's what's fun about New York, I think. Yeah. Is you, it's, I it's would a love to see a couple fighting show. on the corner. Yeah, yeah. That would be, that would make my fucking day. Here's a joke that's not even a joke as much as it's just a feeling that I feel like you might relate to, which okay. is, um, Sometimes I feel like my body is sprinting through life and my soul is jogging behind it out of breath. Yes, I do. And a gym teacher's yelling at me, hustle up. And yes. every day I think, I'm just going to walk for a little bit. Can I meet you at the beginning of the path? Oh. <laughs> it's like a, not even a joke. It's just a lot of times I write things down in my notebook because they're like half thoughts. I love that though. I love it because I'm out of shape and <laughs> I feel like we're just not caught up to our own potential a lot of the t- days. Um, but if you are following it and chasing behind it, at least it's within the realm of possibilities. Oh, that's nice. Um, and also out of shape. Um, <laughs> I always say- I'm I was like, just thinking of you because you're so busy. I, I mean, you do I like show this show every one. day. Sometimes I talk about the gynecological table of life. Yes. Where it just feels like it's all out there. Oh my gosh, that's hilarious. Um, that's a big one <laughs> that's for me. That's so funny. Uh, <laughs> the gynecological table of life because it's all out there. Uh-huh. That goes back to the thing I was saying about jokes. Yeah. Like we're all revealing ourselves all the time. Yeah. Especially now, especially in the society we live in with social media. Sure. That was a big thing with this show was that I begged and said, I'm, I am willing not to do this show if it's all going to be celebrity. Because, and this was in 2019 yeah. before, you know, really everything changed. I was like, because of social media, it's the great equalizer. Everybody yes. has the ability to put themselves out there. And we're no longer living in like a, here's the royals kind of society. Like we need to acknowledge human interest the same way we acknowledge someone we've known and loved for years. And and I think um, that goes for the TMI or the all sharing or the all capable of putting it all out there. It's so true. I wrote down, this is, doesn't really fit in my show, but it's, I'm not sure of this, but I think if you fall asleep in an airport massage chair, you might wake up in the 1980s. Um, totally, at a Brookstone. <laughs> or a Hamlock or Schlemmer. <laughs> I, I Remember that? By the way, SkyMall. Oh, yeah. Remember all of those great? Those are all gone. I guess it's just all on Amazon now. I bet you purchased some things on SkyMall. Oh, fuck yeah. I would go through the, <laughs> I was like, I need those booties. Oh my God, like a straw that's like, permanently cold or whatever they were hawking I loved it. The reason why I wrote this down is cuz I was I was on a flight I was I was in I was in the airport the other day and I saw a guy sitting on a massage chair at the airport without paying for the massage function. Do you have to like, pay for that? Yeah, it's like a it's like a you know you put money in and then it massages you. Do you know what I miss? <laughs> what? Um, coin beds that vibrate. Like that was coin such Coin beds that vibrate. That was such a good that? 
it was all comedy, and so many 80s movies used it. You know, you'd put a quarter in okay. the bed, and then it would vibrate and shake. Oh, I think yes. it was, like, for better sex. Sure. But, like— that the, Yeah, right. Did that an, ever even exist? It, definitely. That a real thing? Yes. Remember? It's, like, in Vacation. <laughs> yes. And then it, like, yes. co- the springs, like, oh pop and everything. But, no, that was a thing. You put a quarter in the bed, and then the bed vibrates. Like, why did that stop? And then I wrote down last week I was touring DC. I was getting a massage in Washington, DC, and it was one of the best massages I've ever had. And the last thing the guy does is he takes my legs and he starts sort of wrestling them like an alligator, and it felt fantastic. And I go, I said to him, I go, that feels so good. What it, what's it called? And he goes, the never ending happiness. And I said, that's, I, I said, that's pretty incredible. And he goes, and I quote, this is a true story. He goes, that's why they call me the DC Touchmaster. <laughs> and I thought, I thought, I hope that's the reason. Because I'm, well, pretty sure also, I docu- I'm pretty sure I saw a documentary about that. And uh, there wasn't never-ending happiness. I was going to say, never-ending happiness sounds like he was going to, you know. No, I know. It has a whole... There's a, there's Pleasure, a whole lineage. Yeah. There's a whole lineage of never-ending happiness. I remember and I went to a massage <laughs> place with my friend, and they did give him a happy ending. Oh, and really? I thought it was so crazy. I was like, "What? That's real? That's not just like in the movies?" I've never gotten that, but I've gotten the vibe that that's about to happen. And I've tried to give the vibe of I don't want that to happen. And it's a very hard, intangible vibe of like, maybe I'm going to just move around too much so that doesn't happen. (laughs) I had a woman in Germany, like definitely I could tell she was trying. And I was like, I'm married, I care. Otherwise, I'd totally do it. But my husband's really not going to appreciate this. But yeah, I I like an '80s massage chair. (laughs) Um, We actually have one in the other room. I'm not kidding. Yeah, no, I, I, yeah, no, I, I, I respect. Oh wait, let me close. Let me close one. Oh, this is the other day. What? What else? I I got. I'm trying to get more in my show about my daughter. At first, I was like, I don't want to have my daughter in the show at all because my last show was all about having a child. Okay. So I was like, I don't want to have it. But then ultimately, was it not to be redundant or to protect her? Both. Got it. I was like, I was like, I don't want, I don't want to have a whole show where people go, "How's Una now?" You know what I mean? Right. and it's like, no, no, that's her life, and right. you know what I mean? But then ultimately, the old man in the pool is all about life and aging and, like, what we value in life. And it's like, what I value is my daughter Also, I'm a parent, so, so I really want to hear it. Yeah, and so, like, the other day I wrote this down, which is, um, so we either walk Una to school or, or she scoots on her scooter or she takes an Uber or I drive her. And the other day I was driving her to school, and Una says to, to Jen, I like dad better than Uba because we don't have to wait for dad. And I thought, that's what you prefer about dad? This dad is five stars. I'm like, I'm like the Uber driver who lives with you and then picks up the tab on breakfast. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I it, like it's that. a half an idea. I, I like that. I mean, I go to like a sentimental place with that. Like, if your kid likes anything you do, and it's okay if they don't like what you're doing because that probably means you're laying down a boundary and they need it, which took me a long time to learn. Um, But when your kid is like happy with the way you do things, is there any 
more... Is there anything better? There's nothing. No, and they're the ultimate truth tellers. Like the other day, Una goes, Dad, you have yellow teeth. I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah I sort of do. Yep. I'm sorry about that. I'm working on it. I know. My Oh, my kids call me yellow teeth. They, <laughs> when, I, when I have like a yoga thing up on the TV, they're like, we don't want to watch yoga. And I'm like, no, I was just trying to like do some. And then Frankie will be like, yeah, I've noticed you put on weight. Oh, my God. And I'm God. like, oh, shit. No, you didn't. Um Kids just say the darndest things. The best show ever, the Art Linklater show. Um, I like that you know that Una feels like you're a five-star dad. Oh, that's sweet. I think five-star dad is a nice ring to it. A nice title yeah. for that track. Exactly. What's a nonprofit that you think does a really good job and then I'm going to donate to them and I'm going to link to them in the show notes? Really? Okay, mine is now um, World Central Kitchen. Okay. And one of my favorite things that I've ever heard a human being say is Jose Andreas saying, we've got to get help to people, not tomorrow, but today. Yeah, I love that. And he is the most make-it-happen person. And I've worked with other uh, philanthropic endeavors and... There's so much holdup, and I don't know how he doesn't let the holdup stop him, but his perseverance is a marvel. Yeah. Also, I think food is a very safe, non-political, yep. non-judgmental. I always give to food banks no when sides. I tour. To Everybody local needs food to bank. eat. Yes. This is not That's about right. who's right and who's wrong. It is a, just a humanity thing. Well, I'm going to donate to his organization. Thank you for that. Uh, and um, will you do it under slash Drew Barrymore? I have a fund going with him. I'm, I have a, I have created a fund so that I could continue to raise money um, do, for them. I'm going to do that, and then I'm going to do it also for Daisy. Daisy's um. And Drew Bear. (laughs) I think Daisy's more fun and cooler than I am also. I love, I gotta love that nickname. Daisy's. It's the greatest. Daisy's a much bigger badass than I am. This is a joy. Thank you for doing this. Daisy's, by the way, the one running and I'm the one trying to catch up. Oh. Working it out because it's not done. Working it out because there's no That's going to do it for another episode of Working It Out. You can follow Drew Barrymore at Drew Barrymore on Instagram. The producers of Working It Out are myself, along with Peter Salamone and Joseph Berbiglia, consulting producer Seth Barish. Sound mix by Kate Belinsky. Sound and video recording by Chuck Staten. Associate producer Mabel Lewis. Special thanks to my consigliere, Mike Berkowitz, as well as Marissa Hurwitz and Josh Upfall. As always, a special thanks to Jack Ensenoff and Bleachers for their music. They could be off winning six Grammys, but they're not. They're here with us at the podcast. Always a special thanks to my wife, the poet J-Hope Stein. Her book is called Little Astronaut, her book of poems. It's at your local bookstore. Special thanks to our daughter, Una, who built the original radio fort made of pillows. Special thanks, most of all, to you who are listening. Thanks for telling your friends. Thanks for telling your darn enemies, because I know... I know it can be awkward bringing things up with your enemies. You know, you're you're sitting at a coffee shop and someone is watching a video on their phone next to you and they don't have earbuds in. And it's sort of like, well, we're all sharing the same sort of audio space. And so it's sort of infringing on my, my space. And so in some ways you're my enemy. So, well, you know what? I'm, hey, I started to interrupt and 
maybe you can't even hear me over the TikTok video you're playing on your phone, but there's this great podcast where a comedian named Mike Birbiglia talks to comedians and directors and other creatives about their unfinished ideas and they hash out a lot of stuff and I think you might enjoy it. We're working it out, everybody. We'll see you next time.